Good morning. I think we'll just get right to it. Um, But I will say it's always fun, and we mentioned this this morning in Sunday school class, it's always fun when someone's leading Sunday school, but someone else is preaching, because you're going to sometimes hear two different things, and it's not that one is right or that one is wrong. It's that there's so many ways to look at Scripture, and there's so many ways, especially when you're looking at something like Revelation. Oh my goodness. There's so many facets to it sometimes. So we get to, So if you were here this morning, you're going to um, hear more in the sermon if you were here for Sunday school. And we'll get some different ways of looking at this. And the best thing is, is then we, we talk with it amongst each other and we say, well, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? And we just have fun in community looking at that together. But as we've been making our way through the book of Revelation, we have been doing so looking at it through the overall theme of discipleship. And so if you're just here for the first time this morning, we've been doing this the last few weeks, working our way through Revelation, because we like to keep the simple books for the end of the year and spend some time in them before Advent. And as we read this letter and take it in, we're asking, what did it mean then? And what does it mean today to be a disciple of Jesus? And I think one of the most poignant things for me so far in this series has been the image of the snake with its head chopped off and the body thrashing. You remember when Travis mentioned that a few weeks ago? The enemy is that snake. The head has been lopped off, dead, but thrashing. And this is part of the good news of the gospel. Through his death and resurrection, Jesus crushed the head of the enemy, the devil, and the powers of sin and death. But our enemy is still thrashing And here on this earth, he's doing quite a bit of damage. But Jesus is bigger than that. And I love that. Last week, we read about these powerful images of these two beasts doing the dragon's bidding. The dragon and these two beasts, this this counterfeit trinity causing havoc on the earth, confusing humanity, causing them to worship anything but the living Jesus Christ. And we do read that they are successful, that many are duped, many are tricked, many are seduced and are turning from Jesus and worshiping the powers of this world. And looking around the world today, we can see that they are still successful. The enemy is dead, but thrashing and people today are still falling for his tricks. And if you're like me, you may have come away from last week hearing these images and beasts and dragons and feeling just a little bit overwhelmed. Are we really up for this? This is a big battle going on. Can we be successful in resisting the pull of these beasts in this world? And at moments like this, it's important to remember, keep reading. We can, we can put down Revelation there if we like and say, oh, that's a lot, but keep reading. Because in the next part of this love letter, we're given a moment to sort of reassess the situation, to step back for a moment and say, hold on a moment, what's going on here? What's really going on here? After all these images of fantastic beasts and how to fight them, which does win the best award for best uh, sermon title for the whole year, Travis. That was excellent. I remember more than just that, but that was good. Um, In the following part of this letter, we get to step back and reassess things. What is going on? And as we do so, we're going to ask three questions. Who are we? What are we to do? And what is Jesus doing? As we go through this chapter, we're going to look at it with those three questions in mind. Who are we? 
And we're going to begin with Scripture. I'm going to read what was just read, chapter 14, verses 1 through 5. And then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. And the sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women. They remained virgins. They followed the lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from mankind and offered as first fruits to God and the lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Who are we? Before we talk about what we see in this passage, let's reflect on what we've just seen. Two beasts... One coming out of the ocean, out of the chaos, one on the earth, seducing humanity into worshiping them and the dragon, and receiving what? They're receiving a mark. Remember that? Why is that mark important? A mark, be it a a symbol or a name or a number, has the power to take your identity and replace it with someone else's. And that is what has happened. People are giving themselves over to the dragon and the beasts, the power of the enemy in this world, and they are losing their identity to them. And the first two things we see in this passage are in response to that previous passage. What is the first thing we see? We see the lamb. And remember, we see the lamb looking as if he had been slain. But we see the lamb standing not in the chaos of the waters, Not on the shifting grounds of the earth, but the Lamb is standing on the mountain, on Mount Zion, standing on rock, in control, and in power. And then what's the second thing we see? We see a multitude of people. 144,000. And remember, 144,000, symbolic or real? We're going to ask that question a lot this morning. Symbolic or real? Symbolic. God's people, his church, a thousand in the Bible represents a number too high to count. Thousands, way too high to count. The lamb standing secure on Mount Zion, a multitude of people in his presence, and what defines them? A mark. A mark. The name of the father and of the lamb written on their foreheads. A mark that does not take their identity away from them, but completes it. A mark that speaks to ownership, certainly, but also loyalty, safety, security, family. These are God's people, and he is their God. And in the presence of God, the people hear a sound of rushing water and thunder, powerful sounds. There's the lamb standing in power. But we also hear the sounds of harps playing. A melody is in the air. And that brings beauty to mind. Power and beauty. Isn't that a wonderful way to think about God? Power and beauty. The lamb, terrible in his power, melodic in his beauty, surrounded by his people, how could they not help but sing a new song? And that is exactly what they are doing. 
singing a new song to the Lamb. And as they do so, we're given a description of who these people are. Pure, faithful followers, truthful, blameless. It says they remained virgins. Symbolic or real? Symbolic. They did not turn to the dragon and to the beasts. They were not seduced by Babylon, by Rome. They have not worshipped other gods. They are pure. They are followers. They are faithful. And most astoundingly, no lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. How? How did Jesus find all these people? Where does that church exist? Where can I find it? I'd love to go to that church. No offense. (laughs) He said, looking in the mirror. How is it that they are like this? It's because they are redeemed. It's because a price for them has been paid. And that price is the blood of the Lamb. And they are the people of the Lamb. They are redeemed. Marked. The people of the Lamb worshiping their Lord and Savior. And who are we? We are the people of the Lamb. This church does exist. In fact, here it is. We are a part of that number. As I was reading through the scripture, I kept hearing that I want to be a part of that number. And then all I could get in my head was where the saints come marching in. Oh, I want to be a part of that number. We're a part of that number. We're a part of that number. Because of Jesus Christ and his saving power working in us every day. Here we are, his church, and in it, the power and beauty of Jesus at work in every one of us. In the midst of cosmic forces battling for the heart of humanity, it's important when we get overwhelmed, take a moment, step back. Who are we again? We are the people of the Lamb. Okay, first question answered. Second question, all right, what are we to do? Well, let's keep reading. Revelation 14, I'm going to read 6 to 13. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. And he said in a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. A second angel followed and said, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. And a third angel followed and said in a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in its image and receives its mark on the forehead or on the hand, they too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the lamb. And the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast in its image or for anyone who receives the mark of its name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. And then I heard a voice from heaven say, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. What are we to do? Well, first of all, it's important to know that we is us and God. We are the people of the Lamb, 
And so what are the people of the Lamb to do? The Lamb and his people are to share the gospel. And I love that in this passage, it is called the eternal gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ will always be shared, always be preached. It will never stop being preached. I think even in heaven, it's going to be preached. We're going to be singing it, sharing it, living it, preaching it. So let's get used to sharing it because we're going to be doing it for eternity. And in this passage, we have three pieces of good news to share. Three pieces of gospel as seen by the three angels proclaiming the good news. First angel, good news. Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Good news. Fear, revere, if you will, the Lord. Glorify God. Why? Because our God actually does things. He is a God of action. On the throne, in control, but also in motion. He is speaking And he is following through. He speaks and he follows up his words with action. And what he does is right and it is just. The Bible says the foundation of his throne is righteousness and justice. Fear God. Give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. And judgment may seem like a strange thing to get excited about. Yes, all right, judgment. But then you read a psalm like Psalm 97, and it says, Zion hears and rejoices, and the villages of Judah are glad. Okay, what are they rejoicing about? What are they glad about? Because of your judgments, O Lord. The world is crying out for judgment because the world is crying out for justice. God's judgment and justice are very much intertwined We're crying out for things to be made right. Has that ever escaped your lips before? Lord, would you just make this right? Lord, would you do something about this? If righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne, of everything that you sit on, then make it happen. Because there are two beasts over there that are creating complete havoc on this earth. And we need things to be made right. The world is crying out for things to be made right. Well, good news. Jesus is alive. And he will never turn a blind eye or a deaf ear to these things. Good news. We have a God who acts on these things and will one day act in such a way that every wrong will be answered for. Every wrong in our own selves, every wrong in our relationship with God, our relationships with each other, even our relationships with this earth will be made whole in their entirety. Good news. We proclaim that. Good news. Second angel calls out, good news. Fallen is Babylon the great. All these big scary monsters, this dragon and these beasts, these scary monsters have fallen They will fall. The powers of this world, big and scary, though they seem, are nothing. Last week we sang, a mighty fortress is our God. And during practice, young Jonah Isaac was sitting right there while his dad, Dave, was 
practicing, and we sang this song, and at the end of it, I shared with Jonah why I love verse 3 so much, and now I'm going to share it with you. Verse 3 goes like this, the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. When faced with Jesus, big grim prince of darkness folds like a paper doll. The powers of this world are no match to what Jesus can do. Good news, what or who we don't see is far more powerful than what we do see. May our eyes be like Elisha and his servant, who when faced with a powerful army, the Lord opened their eyes to see God's army completely surrounding them. Good news, Babylon has fallen. All the evils it could do to the nations will be made right by the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we come to the third angel. Is this good news? Because now we're hearing things like cups of wrath and torment and burning sulfur and smoke. Is this good news? I think this is good news. Because I think it means God takes us seriously and he honors our choices. If we choose to drink the maddening wine of Babylon, if we choose to worship the dragon and his beasts, if we choose to turn from God, renounce his kingdom to build our own, he will honor that choice. And I think that says something profound about God. It can be hard letting someone have their own way when we see how destructive it is. And that's not easy. But God allows it. He honors our choices. And I think that's important when we come up to a passage like this. No one experiences the cup of God's wrath without choosing it. Now, we may hear this passage, and we may think, okay, this is a final, eternal sentence. But I don't think this passage is. While I believe there could be eternal consequences for our actions, I don't think this passage is speaking of that. First, this is a warning. If, if anyone worships the beast, the outcome is open-ended at this point. Second, we often associate cup of wrath being experienced after death. But is it not also experienced during the present? I believe many are experiencing it today because the cup of God's wrath is simply letting people experience the consequences of their sin. This is made implicit in Romans chapter 1. God gave them over to their sin. He didn't have to add any fire or brimstone to the mix. What we experience in the throes of sin is fire and brimstone enough. Felt immediately, if not eventually. I think a lot of people experience hell on earth. I think I've experienced hell on earth. I think I've taken a sip time to time from this cup because I've built my own kingdom. I've tried to do things my way. And God says, I'll honor that. 
But because this can be a present reality for us, there is still hope because good news, our God is an active God who has done and is doing something to see us free from this. And the third reason I don't think this needs to be an eternal sentence is because even God's wrath has purpose. It is to accomplish something. Because to punish just for the sake of punish, well, let's be honest, that's a little sadistic, actually. If I punish my kids just to hurt them, just to make them feel bad, all that does is create more animosity between myself and them. But if I discipline with a desire and a design to let them know that they are loved and to let them know that there is a better way and to let them know that I am there to help them in that way, I think that's holy. I think that shows a greater plan to bring them closer to myself. And I think that is what God is doing. He wants to bring us closer to himself. At the heart of God's wrath is actually a familial, redemptive goal, not simply punitive. The whole story of the Bible is about our redeeming God and the steps that he takes to restore us to himself. And this needs to be part of that story. Good news. Good news worth sharing. Good news worth living. Good news worth fighting for. But never in a way that looks like we're conquering as the world understands conquering. Remember what John said? I turned and looked and I saw a lamb looking as if he had been slain. God's way of winning looks much different, doesn't it? There's a lot more service and sacrifice involved. That's how the lamb wins. So what do we do? The lamb and his people share the good news. Which brings us to our last question. As we step back and we reassess everything, we ask, okay, what is Jesus doing? And we'll read the last little bit of our scripture here. I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man, with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, take your sickle and reap because the time to reap has come for the harvest for the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth and the earth was harvested. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven and he too had a sharp sickle. And still another angel who had charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice. To him who had the sharp sickle, take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. Ew. That sounds a little more Halloween than holy. I'm not sure what that's about. Let's look at it. What do we do with some of this? What is happening? What is John being shown? For this piece of the message, I'm sticking closely with Daryl Johnson's work on this passage. And I think the key is in the image of the wine press. And a gross one at that, let's be honest. 
My first impression of this passage was that it told of the reaping of the the righteous and the wicked. The righteous are reaped by Christ, the Son of Man. The wicked are reaped by the angel with the sickle and thrown into the winepress of God's wrath. What if something different is happening here? Wrath is still taking place, but what if not in the way we think? Two things are being reaped, the grain and the grapes. But in the Bible, reaping is never used to mean judgment. Reaping is only used on something that is being gathered in and being kept, being saved, wanted. When the Son of Man reaped the earth, there is no talk afterwards of winnowing or the blowing away of chaff, both very much judgment metaphors. The world is reaped and it is kept, but the grapes are reaped too, and something terrible is happening to these grapes. They are being crushed and blood is flowing out. And a lot of blood is flowing out. As high as a horse's bridle, is that about right, Stan, about here? 1,600 stadia, roughly the size of Palestine at the time, which is, I don't know how big. Sorry, I should have figured that out. I didn't figure it out. Forgive me. A lot of blood. What is this about? Grapes come from a vine. With me so far? In the past, Israel was called the vine. A vine that never flourished the way it was supposed to. A vine that never grew the way it was supposed to. A vine that was good for nothing more than to be cut down and thrown into the fire and burned. But then what did John's gospel tell us? In chapter 15 of John's gospel, Jesus says, I am the true vine. I am the true vine. Do you see the grapes are gathered from the true vine, a symbol for Jesus. The grapes are to be taken and crushed in the wine press outside the city. Where was Jesus crucified? Outside of Jerusalem, outside the city. Jesus is to be taken and crushed in the wine press of God's wrath outside the city. The wine press is the cross. The blood that flows is the blood of Christ. How much blood flows? 1,600 stadia. As high as horses' bridles, as far as Palestine. Symbolic or real? Symbolic. 144,000 people. Symbolic or real? Symbolic. A multitude. How do you save a multitude of people? How do you provide enough blood to cover the sins of humanity? You press out more than you could ever count. Jesus' blood flows for every sinner who repents. Christ's saving grace. Christ's saving power. What is Jesus doing? Offering his saving power, the blood that washes us clean to the world. Offering his blood to those who hold the mark of the beast on their foreheads, saying, come, turn from these things and receive a new mark that actually completes your identity. Come and have your sins washed away and take your spot with the lamb and his people, sharing the good news of God's saving power. Isn't that good? Today, this morning, at Shelburne Street Church of Christ, who are we? We are the people of the Lamb, redeemed by His power, filled with His beauty, and be encouraged. There is a multitude of us. 
You remember when Elijah was feeling down? He said, oh, Lord, I'm the only one left. And God said, no, 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 Elijah, I reserve 7,000, a perfect multitude of followers who have not yet bowed to Baal, who call me Lord. And I think sometimes we feel like it's just us. There's no one else. But we are part of a multitude. We stand with God, marked by him as his people. Every nation and tribe and language, marked by the name on our foreheads, redeemed by the Lamb. And a worshiping people, too. Especially singing. We love to sing here at Shelburne Street, Church of Christ. And soon we will be singing, We Shall Assemble. And will it ever ring true today? Especially after reading this passage. We shall assemble on the mountain, the mountain with the Lamb. We sing the song of the redeemed. Indeed, we do. Get ready to sing it strong, church. Get ready to sing it loud. But that's not the only thing we do here. Today, what are we to do? What are the Lamb and His people to do? Share the good news. Share that eternal gospel. Because nothing will ever keep it down. I think of that movie Wally. Remember Wally, the robot, is in the junkyard, the massive junkyard. I think all the planet is a junkyard. And he cuts open the fridge, and remember, he finds that little tiny vine just starting to grow. What a picture of the eternal gospel! You can't keep this Jesus, this true vine, down. No matter how much junk we throw at it, the gospel will be shared, it will be preached, and lived, and it will move, and it will change people all over the world. But we are tasked to share it today. Tasked to proclaim fear and glorify the Lord. God is alive and active. His terrible powder, power, sorry, his melodic beauty is still at work in the world today. Always will be. Turn to him. Follow him. Taste and see that he is good. We're tasked to proclaim fallen is Babylon the great. The things that appear so powerful in this world are nothing compared to the lamb who was slain. Nothing compared to the power of of Jesus. What we don't see is always more powerful than the things that lure us, tempt us, challenge, and set themselves up against us. Big scary world, big scary devil, one little word shall fell him. Tasked to share the warning of God's wrath, please with great humility and love and with blessed timing, a warning of what it means to serve ourselves instead of him. And what we see described in this passage is a picture, a warning that says, could life serving the dragon and the beasts really be so bad? Yes. The answer is a well-rounded yes. Yes, it can. Don't do it. Serve the Lord. And today, what is Jesus doing? Because he loves this hurting world, Jesus continues to shower his saving power upon it. Often it will come through the words that he puts in our mouths and the actions that he puts in our hands and our feet. And so we follow the one who laid down his life. Are we laying down ours? And I think this is probably the greatest takeaway for this morning is to go and pray and say, Lord, what does it look like to lay down our life today? What does that look like? There's probably not many chances here where we live to be a, a full martyr in the sense of giving our lives, but I don't know. Others have. 
What does it look like to lay down our lives for others? The victory we see through the slain lamb is one that comes through service and sacrifice. What does that look like? What does it look like to lay down our lives for others, for our neighbors, for our friends? Business people, what does it look like to lay down your lives for your employees, teachers, for your students, husbands for your wives, and wives for your husbands? Parents, what does it look like to lay down your life for your children? Elders, deacons, and ministers, what does it look like to lay down our lives for this church? And Shelburne Street Church of Christ, what does it look like to lay down our lives for this community around us? There is a gathering, there is a reaping that is going to take place for the whole world. And service and sacrifice is the greatest thing that God has given us to use in reaching that world with him. They are the greatest tools that we have, the greatest weapon that we wield, the greatest curriculum we could use to teach it. Service and sacrifice will always speak the gospel with a megaphone and project it with a million watt bulb. So, after the fantastic images of the dragon and these beasts, we take a moment to reassess the situation. Hold on a moment. Who are we again? What are we to do? What is Jesus doing? The lamb and his people sharing the good news of God's saving power. Each and every one of us called to this, redeemed and marked for Jesus. Each and every one of us to play a part in declaring this gospel the saving power of Jesus Christ. Each and every one of us are called to speak Christ's saving power and live Christ's saving power and sing about Christ's saving power and think and teach and fight for Christ's saving power. But never to conquer in the way that the world understands victory. Rather, we fight by laying down our lives, however God calls us to do so, and by so doing, exhibit Christ's saving power through service and sacrifice. This is who we are. This is what we are to do. This is what Jesus is doing. Amen? All right. I'm going to pray and worship team. Why don't you come back up? Let's pray. So, Lord, now comes the part where we say help because we need to be shown how to do this daily, Lord. We need your strength and your courage to be your people. And, Lord, you will give us everything we need daily to be your servants, to be a sacrifice, to love this world the way you did this world that you shed your blood for, Lord. And so, Father, may, this, may pieces of this weigh on our hearts and may we bring it to you. And Lord, give us ears to hear and eyes to see what you will tell us, what you will show us, what you will share with us. Give us strength to do it together. And Lord, as we do so day in and day out, may you be glorified. We pray this in your most holy name. Amen. Amen.